So those of you that are here regularly, you know that we, um, we, we sort of skipped over this passage here a few weeks back, um, and I intended to come back to it as I have today. And in this little incident that we read about here, there's so much that's not only valuable, but it's really vital to the health of the church. It's really vital to the health of um, each of us individually as believers to, to really understand what it is that Jesus is teaching us here. Now, one of the biggest problems throughout the long history of the church has been the divisions that exist inside the church. So this is, this is like an insider message today. So we, we are gonna talk sort of family talk here today because I, I think, you know, all of us, um, hopefully all of us, or most of us, uh, we, we want to see the kingdom of God expand. We want to see people impacted by the gospel. We want to see lives changed. Uh, we want to see God work. But we ourselves can be a hindrance to that if we have the wrong attitudes. And so we want to just consider those kinds of things today and, and be able to check our own hearts, to be able to check our hearts personally, to be able to even collectively as a, as a congregation or even beyond our congregation as a, as a family of churches or as a tribe. I'm going to talk about uh, tribalism in a moment. Um, so we can evaluate ourselves and make sure we are in the place that God wants us to be in the place where he can bless us and through us make us a blessing to others. Historically, the church has been at its best when Christians are loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, slow to judge, committed to believing the best about others, magnanimous and uh, diversely unified around the gospel. When, when, the, when the church is like that, when believers are like that, it, it's been a good, good season for the church. Conversely, the church is at its worst when it is sectarian, small-minded, petty, quarrelsome, graceless, contentious, divisive, hypercritical, and loveless. And it's been that far too much of the time. And so this, this can't go on. And, and the story that we're reading here um, really shows us, Jesus teaches us in just a few simple words uh, what our attitude is to be, what it is not to be, and what it is to be. So the difference is between Jesus and his immature apostles. And notice I say his immature apostles. This is early on in the experience of these men. They're, they're in the process of learning and growing and sometimes they're getting it and sometimes they're not getting it. And here's a point where they didn't get it. And so Jesus corrects them. So, 
It's the difference between Jesus and his immature disciples. Uh, this is also the difference between those who are kingdom-minded and work to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among the universal body of Christ and those who can't see beyond their sectarian noses and are at constant war with everyone who doesn't conform to their very narrow and rigid interpretation of the faith. So there are unfortunately all kinds of people in the church uh, who have a very small and narrow view of everything and, and they, they want uh, conformity to that if they're going to accept you as a, a fellow Christian or somebody that you, know, you can embrace uh, in the Lord. Now, this kind of narrowness, I can speak with uh, clarity and authority on this for the simple reason that I have been there. I have been there. Uh, there was a time in my life where um, I, I was pretty much critical about everything. I remember my mother, uh, who is a believer as well, and I was probably all of 24, 25 years old at the time. And I remember a phone conversation with her. I, I, I can still remember this today. And uh, she was telling me about some book she was reading or some Christian that she was listening to. And, and I was warning her. I told her, Mom, oh, that's bad. You know, they, you shouldn't be reading that. You shouldn't be listening to that. And I remember she said to me, she goes, now, Brian, you know, how is it that at such a young age, you seem to, to know uh, so much more than everybody else and, and you seem to think that you've got it all right and everybody's got it all wrong. And I thought, Mom, that's not very nice to say <laughs> to your son. But you know what? At the time, I thought, well, my poor mom, she just doesn't get it. But you know what? My mom was actually right. So there, there were many years in my life where I, I saw things through that very uh, narrow narrow lens. And, and so I want to talk about that today because what I can tell you is it was immaturity on my part. And, and listen, we all can be immature. There's just part of natural life where we're immature, right? But, but what is the objective? The objective is to grow and become mature. And the same is true spiritually. There's a place where we can be immature. In the passage that we just read, the apostles at this stage are immature, they think they're doing the right thing. They think this is what Jesus wants us to do. Somebody's helping somebody else in Jesus' name, but because they're not part of our group, we're telling them to stop it. They thought that that was a great idea. And so they come back to Jesus and John speaks up and tells them, hey, this is what we did. There was a person casting out demons in your name. And because he wasn't part of our little group, we told him he shouldn't do that. We told him to stop it. And I'm sure at this point, if Jesus had an iPhone with an emoji. Uh, have you ever seen that emoji where it's like the, the, um, the palm in the face where you're just like, oh, you know, I can't, I can't believe it. That, that's the one Jesus would have put right there. It's like, oh, I, you know, I can't believe that you guys think like this. No, no, no. This is not the attitude that we are to have. And this, you know, it, it, at the time it seemed right to them. Of course, this is what Jesus would want us to do. But Jesus says, no, this isn't it. I, I was with a friend the other day 
and we were walking along and he was telling me his own story about um, just how God at a certain time in his life was bringing him out of a deep, deep pit. And he was telling me about the, the two people, uh, interestingly, that God used to, to minister to him in those days and there are two people, they are two people who uh, he said, you know, he wouldn't even agree with much of their teaching even today. And I certainly wouldn't either. But I said to him at a certain point, I said, yeah, I, of course, I preach many sermons and use those two people in my illustration. But he said that it was those two people that God used to prevent him from killing himself. And I thought, wow, okay, we have to be really, really careful here um, when it comes to our open criticism and judgmental attitudes toward uh, God's servants who we don't agree with on maybe a number of things. So, but let's get this picture. The church is in a sense like the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel, some of you know, it was, it was one nation, um, but it was made up of 12 tribes. And each of the tribes were distinct. Each of them were different. Each of them had their own um, purposes. And, and they collectively, all of them together, made up the nation. And when each tribe was doing its own distinct thing for its own, or, or you know, God's desired purpose, the overall effect was God was being glorified. See, God wanted to use the children of Israel to reach the other nations. And as long as the tribes understood that we're, we're 12 distinct tribes, but we're part of one, and God's going to use the, the one collectively, use us all collectively to you know, be a witness through the one, as long as they had that attitude, things were good. But the moment they regressed into tribalism, and the moment they got to that point where they started uh, warring amongst themselves, the whole witness was lost. And, and the church is somewhat like that. See, the church is made up of many tribes as well. There are many different groups. There are many different denominations. Now, now some people think, and, and even critics of the church and of the faith will point out uh, the the division. So they'll say, oh, you Christians, you know, you can't even, uh, you can't even agree together. There's so many different denominations and so forth. And they'll sometimes rattle off the number of denominations. And, and yet what they don't know that we should know is that in reality, all Christians believe essentially the same thing. We just have minor differences on mostly relatively minor issues. But we all believe underneath the same thing. We all believe that Jesus is the son of God. We all believe that God the Father sent him into the world, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived uh, a sinless life, that he died in our place to take away our sins, that he rose again from the grave on the third day, that he ascended to heaven, that he's gonna come back again. We all believe that. That's what a Christian is. And all of these denominations that some people look on and say, oh, look at all the divisions among Christians, um, that's not a totally accurate picture. 
But unfortunately, sometimes that is the reality. Even though we have the fundamental, essential truths in common, we get divided up over non-essential and sometimes very unimportant and even petty kinds of things. And that's what we can not keep doing. We cannot fall into tribalism. Now, I was just in New York. I came home last night from New York, as a matter of fact, and I spent the week with 30-something pastors And we stayed in a facility that is owned and operated by a Pentecostal group. In our group, we had Calvary Chapel guys because we're Calvary Chapel. Uh, We had guys from more sort of just uh, other non-denominational groups. We had some guys from uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and from Presbyterianism. And we all had a fantastic week together of fellowshipping and seeking the Lord. And so we met in a place that was uh, owned and operated by uh, the Pentecostal church. On Wednesday night, I attended a fantastic service at a Presbyterian church. And we all were gathered around for the sake of the gospel to see how God might uh, use us to further the gospel throughout the world, New York City, these, these different places. And When I have that kind of experience, I walk away just thinking, Lord, this is so good. This is the way that you want it to be. And I'm more and more convinced of that now than I have uh, ever been. When I first came back from England, which was 19 years ago now, and people would ask me this question, uh, so what is, what's God speaking to you? What's on your heart? And I would always respond, maybe, maybe with a few things, but I would always respond with this, and I still do today. What's on my heart is that God is calling his people to come together. He's calling us to get rid of our sectarian mentalities and to rally together around the gospel. Now, back 19 years ago, when I would say that, I, it was something that I could sense, but I wasn't necessarily seeing it. But I can stand here today and tell you that not only do I sense it, but I see it now. I see it happening, and it's such a wonderful thing. But, but we have to fight for this. We have to really labor, as Paul said to the Ephesians, we have to put forth every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit because the enemy wants to rip us apart because his strategy is divide and conquer. If he can get us all divided up against one another, um, then it just makes his job much easier. Now, I do think that those who are mainly responsible for the sectarian attitudes and the divisions that exist in the church, I do think that those who are primarily responsible, primarily responsible are not you sitting and listening to the teaching, but us who are teaching you. Because you're basically just picking up what we're communicating to you. And I think that we have been very, very guilty of communicating a sectarian mentality where oftentimes, instead of teaching and preaching God's word and preaching the gospel, we're criticizing the church down the street or we're criticizing the movement over here and giving you reasons to be suspicious about them. And, and that is so wrong. And I have done that. 
I have personally done that in the past. And I, I like to look at it in my immature days. They just went on much longer than they should have. Uh, but it's something that God has dealt with me about. It's something that God has convicted me over. It's something that I have, I have had to repent of. And so I'm not, just understand, I'm not standing up here today pointing the finger at you saying, you know, you're responsible for this. Maybe you've taken it and you're, do, you're doing a similar kind of a thing, but unfortunately I think it's, it's been, it's learned behavior. You've, you've learned it from leaders and it's the leaders who, who really need to um, repent of these things. So I want to give you a few examples and I have a couple of things I want to read to you. And, and it's interesting to me because like I said, in my mind, you know, I've, I've been thinking ahead about this message for a few weeks because we've been teaching some other things. And it's really interesting how this week, just a number of things came my way and I could take them as a coincidence maybe, or I could see them as just stuff God has brought my way uh, in order to help illustrate what I'm talking about. So yesterday I was uh, scrolling through my Instagram and I came across an Instagram by a friend of mine who pastors a church up in Central California. And um, he was, the Instagram was a picture of him with another person, another guy. They were standing together. You know, they took a nice picture together. And then he had a few paragraphs of who the person was and why this picture was significant. And so um, let me just read to you what, what he wrote under this picture. Just imagine me standing here with another guy, you know, arm in arm, smiling at you. Uh, that's what the picture looked like. Uh, but here's what it said. It said, Tom, that, that was the other guy. So my friend's name is Brian. Uh, Brian Post, Tom met Jesus in a movement known as the Vineyard. I met Jesus in a movement known as Calvary Chapel. The Vineyard and Calvary Chapel movements were once unified, one in the same Jesus movement. In the early 80s, sadly, a split occurred between the two uh, before, he says, either of us got saved. Bitter tensions mountains, mountain, mounted, so I'm told. Uh, so much so that in at least one instance, I'm aware of two biological brothers were divided into separate camps. Into the early 90s, when I planted our church and Tom began his leadership role at uh, the vineyard, uh, that split, primarily concentrated in Southern California, had fermented into deep suspicion and or straight up condemnation toward the other. I remember attending many CC conferences where teachings and discussions uh, were frequently laced with strongly held negative views toward Vineyard. Having come into the CC movement after the split, I had always found it hard to relate to those strong opinions on this matter as, I, as it wasn't my war. Uh, while in this soil and without any clear awareness of it, a pernicious self-righteousness began to take root in me simply due to my affiliation with the correct tribe. In the early days of our plant, I was young, arrogant, 23 years old, and still in desperate need of discovering the historical vastness of God's kingdom while unlearning the harmful suspicions uh, that enslaved me, disallowing me to extend genuine friendship to good brothers like Tom. 
And he goes on to talk about this beautiful reconciliation and thing that's really. So what he's talking about, I know all of this because I lived through all of this. So back in the 80s, Vineyard and Calvary Chapel used to be one. And then there was a split among us. There was a difference of opinion. There were different theological views on certain things. None of them had to do with any essential doctrine. They had to do with more uh, practices and things related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the differences were probably significant enough for us to separate. But as I reflect back on it now, I think we really did a poor job of navigating that separation. Because rather than agreeing to disagree agreeably and just recognizing that, okay, you guys are going in this direction, we're going in this direction, God bless you as you go, we started warring with one another. And I think the most uh, aggressive assaults came from um, our side against the vineyard to the point where in in some of our Calvary Chapel churches, if a person was playing a vineyard song, uh, we were suspicious about that. Like, you know, you shouldn't play that music. And so this, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. This is, this is uh, an actual illustration, as I've said here. Now, I, I want to read you another. Now, this is a letter that I got this week, and you'll figure out pretty quickly who it's from, I think. Um, and it says this. It says, Brian, I want to thank you again for your gracious invitation to speak at the CC Men's Conference. In a way, it was healing to me. As you know, some pastors of smaller Calvary chapels have taken pot shots at me. Uh, I wanted to erase smaller because it hasn't only been smaller Calvary chapels, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, Calvary chapels have taken pot shots at me for decades. I've always refused to defend myself and said nothing but good things about uh, guys who were critical for whatever reason. So to be invited by you to speak in such a history-making church that I've always admired touched me deeply. Uh, being there brought back so many great memories when as a youth pastor in Norwalk, I would load up the busload of high school students, drive them down to Calvary for the music and the teaching. It was an important element in our discipleship process, which later became known as Purpose Driven. And so this is a letter I received from Rick Warren this week. And... The way that Calvary Chapel people have treated Rick Warren and the leaders are the main offenders is shameful. It is downright shameful. Here's a man who's a brother. Here's a man that God has used in an extraordinary way all around the world. But because he doesn't teach verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation, somehow he's bad. And, and that has been what's happened. Now, that is a method. So it's a methodological difference that has caused there to be so much slander and so much hate directed toward this person. It is unbelievable. This is the kind of stuff that I know breaks the heart of God. Breaks God's heart. I have four kids. I love each one of them separately and and passionately. And the one thing I will not allow any of them to do is talk about the other. They want to talk about their brother or sister. It's like, oh, nope, nope. Don't want to hear it. (laughs) 
I don't want to hear that. And I think with God, our father, when he sees his children slandering one another and, and judging and, and being critical and all this, I, it, this, is, this grieves the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of thing that grieves the Holy Spirit. So these are two examples. So this past week, we're in New York City, and uh, Cheryl has a new friend, and she got together with her friend. And it just so happens that this friend has just this week gone into the biggest crisis in her own ministry because she was misrepresented by somebody that she had you know, no power over whatsoever, that she did something or endorsed something or agreed to something which she did not do. Uh, but it was out of her control. It just happened. It came out. And instead of Christians giving her the benefit of the doubt and listening to what she had to say, there was just this big pile on and all of this condemnation toward her. And she said to Cheryl, she said, you know, I knew I would be persecuted for my faith. I just never thought it was going to come from Christians. <laughs> she lives in New York City. It's a fairly secular place. She said, I've, I've not experienced this kind of persecution at all in this city, but from my own people, I, I've been condemned and I didn't even do what they're thinking that I did. So this is the kind of stuff that we just cannot keep doing. We can't erase the past, but we can surely seek our best to not repeat it. And, and as we go forward, as we want to see God do a work, as, as we're praying, you know, that God will pour out his spirit. You know, sometimes I think it's so funny how we, you know, God pour out your spirit. And we're just thinking like pour out your spirit right here on us, just us. This is the holy huddle, Lord, and everybody else out there. Uh, you know, it really doesn't even work that way. Anybody who's ever studied the history of revival or outpourings of God's spirit, this is what you find out. God pours out his spirit on all of his people. When I was young, I, I came out of uh, a nominal Roman Catholicism. And in my younger days, I was a huge critic of the Roman Catholic Church. And I was always looking for an angle to preach against it. And... I did outgrow that, thank God. But I was, you know, I have a really good friend, one of my best friends, as a matter of fact. He's been here. He's filled in for me a while ago, Richard Semino. Uh, Richard and I got saved out of similar kinds of backgrounds. He got saved out of Catholicism. I did as well. And we've been friends for almost 40 years. And for, for whatever reason, I just never heard all the details of his conversion until like six months ago. We were in a conversation and he was telling me the details. And here was the interesting thing. He said, you know, um, I was led to the Lord by a Roman Catholic. I was discipled in my Catholic church. Somebody introduced me to Calvary Chapel. So I started coming over and listening to Pastor Chuck and taking his messages back to my Catholic church and sharing them with everybody there who were all so excited about Jesus. It's like, wow, can you do that? <laughs> Is that even possible? No, I didn't say that now, but I, I, I might've said that back then. But you see, it's all just based on Really, it's based on ignorance sometimes. It's based on pride and all of these different kinds of things. So here's a question. 
how is it we so often behave in such an un-Jesus-like manner in these things? And when I say an un-Jesus-like manner, I'm contrasting Jesus with the apostles here. The apostles, they see this man, he's doing this, he's not part of us, stop him, tell him to stop it. I mean, think of the poor demon-possessed person. It's like, well, leave him alone, he's trying to (laughs) deliver me. No, he can't do it. You have to stay demon-possessed because he's not part of our club and we're not gonna let that. And they come back to tell Jesus, and I'm sure they thought, Lord, this is great. I know you're gonna be so proud of us. Guess what we did? Jesus is, you know, I can't believe it. Why do we do this? How, it is, how is it that we do this so often? Well, there's five things that I'm gonna just touch on really quickly. Number one, we do it because of our sinful human nature. This is, this is, <laughs> this is what sinners do. But Paul puts it this way in writing to the Corinthians. He says, he says, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? In other words, Paul's saying, look, you're believers, you're Christians, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, but you're not acting like it. You're not behaving like it. You're behaving like people who don't have the spirit. And he says, for where one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul says, this, this thing is carnal. When we say that our group is the best and only group that God really is with or is going to honor or bless or any of that, uh, we're, we're, that's a carnal perspective on things. Secondly, it's due to demonic influence. And this has been the, one of the devil's greatest weapons, divide and conquer, like I said. And, and just to get the church all divided up, all fighting against each other. Because if we're fighting against each other, guess what we're not doing? We're not fighting against the real enemy. And so the enemy himself will try to stir things up among believers to get us distracted from the real battle. And James chapter three touches on this. James says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And then he says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Wow. Envy and self-seeking. And so often, I have to say, so often, especially on the level of leadership, uh, the divisions come because of envy of that other person over there. It, it's because I, I want to have those crowds. I want those, that, those people should be coming and listen to me, not to that person. Oh, if they knew what I know about that person, they would leave his church and come to mine. See, that's envy and self-seeking. Paul says that's demonic. But also, number three, it's a failure to understand the nature of the one body of Christ. We are one body. We're we're one body. You have brothers and sisters all over the planet. And they go to all different kinds of churches. They go to Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Catholic churches and Orthodox churches. They They go to all different kinds of churches. They're God's people. They love Jesus. They don't do everything the way we do. 
but they love the Lord. And we, the failure to understand that, Paul says in Ephesians 4, I mentioned it earlier, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in, one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Wow. There's just one Lord. There's just one faith. There's just one baptism. And I've traveled quite a bit and I've met people all around the world who love Jesus but have a different tradition, have a different background, have a different method of doing things. It's a failure to love. According to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely thinks no evil, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. You see, when I hear about another Christian group, what do, what's my first thought? And, and I think many leaders have fostered in people, um, sometimes it's, it's more severely uh, just an, an absolute condemnation condemning kind of an attitude, but, but other times it's just more of a suspicion. We're just suspicious of you. You know, it's like, oh, well, just don't, you know, don't hug or get now because, you know, we're kind of just not quite sure about you. And, but love believes all things. You see a brother or sister, Cheryl and I were talking about how in, you know, we always talk about the early days of Calvary and all that. And back then it was just, everybody just loved each other. You met another Christian, you're like, oh, another Christian. Ah, wow, this is great. You didn't meet another Christian, go, what, what church do you go to? What's your doctrinal statement? All right, well, how you doing? Good to meet you. You didn't do that back then. You just were excited about loving other people because man, they loved you and it was all great. Failure to love and number five, spiritual immaturity. There's another story that's like this in the sense that the attitude is the same. The context is different, but the attitude is the same. In Luke chapter nine, we have the story of James and John. They were the sons of thunder. They had this, there's the story of how they were, they were passing through Samaria. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. It was obvious that that's where he was going. They were passing through Samaria and the Samaritans, they were not re, open receiving Jesus. And um, the, uh, James and John say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and consume these people? And Jesus said, Oh, brother. Jesus said, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives. He came to save them. And, and see, this is spiritual immaturity. You don't know what spirit you're of. They're so immature, they don't even get what Jesus came to do. He came to save lives, not destroy them. These people are not receiving us. Let's call down fire. And that, that is the attitude of the immature. Now, John, of course, John writes the gospel of John many, many, many decades later, right? John writes the 17th chapter where Jesus there 
prays for a unity, where he prays for us to love one another and to be one as uh, he and the Father are one. And then John, later writing his own epistle, listen to what he says. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I wonder if John was thinking back on this moment. See, because at, at this particular moment that we read about in Mark, John's thinking, this guy's not really a believer. He's not part of us. Now John writes many decades later, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that's, they are born of God. And that's true. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is born of God. And they are part of the universal body of Christ. And we are one with them. And even though we have different views and opinions and doctrinal things uh, on secondary issues, we all have the common faith in Jesus. So, if we ever hope to see a great outpouring of God's Spirit, I think it has to start with love and unity among ourselves. Why does anybody want to join a quarreling family? What is, you know, if, it, man, you know, if you go over to somebody's house and they start a big fight, you're just like looking, oh gosh, how do I get out of here? This is so uncomfortable. And we're inviting people, come and be part of the church, come be part of this family. But wait, don't go to that one. Oh no, wait, you're gonna stay away from those people over there. I mean, right away, that, I think we just undid the message that we were trying to send. So we have to Cultivate love and unity in our own midst. Psalm 133 says this. It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren, brothers and sisters, to dwell together in unity. And then it says this, for it is like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. What does that mean? Well, Aaron was the priest and the oil symbolized the anointing that was upon him. And when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, there's an anointing. That's what we long for. We, we long for the anointing of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit comes through the unity of the church. And as we set aside our differences on those non-essential things. And we just say, man, we're, we're together for the gospel. We're together for the kingdom. Let's work to see people come to faith in Jesus and just rid ourselves of the criticism. See, that's the thing. We just tend to be so critical. Well, they, we don't do it that way. Or they don't, I, I was at a, a service the other night that had a, a liturgical aspect to it. They said the, um, the Apostles' Creed together. They went through a number of aspects of a, of a liturgical kind of a thing. Liturgical, and what I'm saying is, you know, they're, they're uh, reading together through certain statements. The one person reads, the people respond. It's all written out for you. 
And I, I know even some of my own friends are like, oh, that's weird. I don't, I don't really like that. It just seems this way or that way. It's like, okay, fine. But the people there liked it and, and, and for them it was very meaningful and it was, there was certainly nothing wrong with it and there was much right with it because all that it was saying was true. So we have to be careful not to take our preferences and make them the way God thinks about everything. I, I, I don't like the way people do that. Okay, find a church where you like what they do. And, and be happy there. And then recognize, obviously, the people at this church, they like what they do. That's why they go there. They like that. We, you know, it's just a magnanimous spirit recognizes that there are, there's lots of diversity. You know, God's called us to unity, but with diversity. We're not all the same. I don't know if you, some of you have been here for many, many years. Maybe you remember Pastor Chuck used to. He had this whole thing that he would go through about the various denominations. You know, the Catholic and Orthodox churches, God raised them up because some people like all the aesthetics. They like to be, they like the incense and they like the formality and they, they just worship there. And so God made that, that group. And then, you know, some people are super exuberant and excited and they want to hoop and holler. And so God you know, the, raised up the Pentecostal movement and, and some people are more stoic and they don't like, like all of that kind of action and activity. So uh, the Episcopalian church and the Presbyterians and, you know, he would just go through this whole uh, list of the denominations and kind of just connect their personalities with the personalities of different people and just show why God raised up such diversity. And I think, yes, that is true. That is right. God's into diversity. And the unity comes around the unity of the Spirit. One God, one Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those are the things. That's what we're united about. And the other things, we have freedom to have diversity. So no one church or movement or denomination is singled out for blessing and a revival. The whole body of Christ experiences the blessing. There are some people that mistakenly think that in the 60s, God poured out his spirit on Calvary Chapel and there was a great revival that happened right here at Fairview and Sunflower and then it spread out through other Calvary chapels going around the country. But that's, that was the extent of it. No, that wasn't the extent of it. You go around the world and you find during that time, all over the world, God was doing similar things. Raising up new movements. Blessing ones that had a historic um, connection with the, the communities or whatever. No one church is ever going to be uh, the means of blessing for all people. And so God is going to pour out his spirit upon his church and all of that diversity uh, that's there, he's gonna use that diversity. So final word, let's repent of our harsh and judgmental attitudes toward uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ and let's be all for one and one for all. Let's just be for the gospel. And let's be hopeful that, that God's going to use all of his people to reach more people. And in these days especially, 
I do think that the, the way culture, society, uh, everything's going, in, in some ways, if we don't willingly go here, we will be forced here. Because when you've got the government breathing down your neck and you've got the culture pressing in and, and resisting and opposing and even persecuting, you know, you're looking around for other Christians. You're not really looking around for what denomination they belong to. That doesn't matter anymore. And so let's not let it matter now because this sectarian mentality, it only hinders the progress of the gospel. It doesn't enhance it. You know, as I mentioned, New York City, I just came back. Uh, I've mentioned Tim Keller many times. Uh, I like Tim. I like his teaching. Um, He was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he's now stepped down as the pastor of the church, but he oversees a ministry called City to City. And City to City is a church planting ministry uh, for New York City and for major cities in the world. And you know, here's the crazy thing. They give financial support to churches uh, so so that the gospel can be spread in the communities. And you know what? They give it across the board to any church that is genuinely evangelical. Any church, regardless of your denomination, if you believe the Bible is God's word and you're preaching salvation through Christ alone, then they will support financially your ministry. That is magnanimous right there. That is huge. They're not saying, no, you got to come and be part of our denomination or group. And I look at that and I think, well, God bless them. That is such a kingdom-minded mentality. And that's the kind of mentality uh, that we need to have here. That's the spirit that we want at this church, that we would be able to rejoice in all that God's doing all around us. And where opportunities arise and it seems like a good thing, we link arms with brothers and sisters from other groups and denominations and all that stuff, and we go forward for the advancement of the kingdom. That's my prayer for us. So Lord, we do pray that you would, well, forgive us, Lord, for the pride and the selfish ambition and and the different things, the ignorance, um, the critical spirit. Forgive us for those things that have been a hindrance to the gospel and not only a hindrance to the gospel, but things that have um, grieved you, that have grieved your spirit, seeing your children uh, treat one another in such unkind and unloving ways. And Lord, may we not be guilty of that. We thank you that there's forgiveness. We thank you that, uh, Lord, we're all learning and growing and we're maturing. Help us to mature. And even if we're in an arrested state of development and, and we've somehow gotten stuck in this area, Lord, just bring us through this, that we might see with your eyes and feel with your heart the love that you have for your people and that we might rejoice together with all the saints. Lord, that's what your word said, that we're growing together with all the saints into a deeper understanding of who you are.
And may that be so among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.